Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It was Thursday, April 6, 1995, and that evening's installment of the footy show promised fireworks. With the regular panel joined by Ken Arthurson and John Rebo, it was to be the first chance for the public to hear the events of the past week debated by the major players on both sides. Rebo, however, was worried, with a nagging thought that he was walking into what he later described as a snake pit. As it turned out, his fears were well-founded, with a vitriolic hour of television kicking off a media war which would very quickly have the game in tatters. This is Taking the Game to China, the 14th chapter of the Rugby League Digest's in-depth investigation of the Super League War. Hey everyone, Michael Adams here. Just before we get to this week's chapter, I wanted to insert a couple of errata notes based on some of the things we talked about in chapter 13. It's all about pay TV, mate. Uh, So the first one, not so much a correction as a clarification. You may recall I expressed some bemusement uh, and was a bit puzzled as to how Telstra or Telecom, then a publicly owned company, they hadn't been privatized at that stage, bidding for a government-run auction and, uh, you know, eventually threatening to sue the government, its own owner. Long-time listener and someone who's become kind of our legal counsel of late, which is very helpful, uh, Kyle Katasi clarified the matter by saying that in 1993, in preparation for eventual privatization, Telstra was corporatized. So basically, the government at this point became uh, Telecom's shareholder, and Telecom was run independently of the government. So uh, that is how that situation could pass as it did. Uh, and another long-time listener, at Paul Mac underscore 78 on Twitter, pointed out that the disgust I expressed about the first pay TV broadcast in Australia was somewhat misplaced in that it was actually not the Ron Casey you might all be thinking of who hosted that broadcast, but the Melbourne sports reporter, Ron Casey, who, uh, fittingly enough, was actually the first sports reporter to appear on Australian TV back in 1956. So obviously there's... Uh, a reason for him hosting it, and uh, may- maybe I-, I shouldn't have flown off the handle as I did. I'm- I maintain the the general air of disgust about the fact that we almost lost our game over pay TV, uh, but there we go. That deserves a clarification. Paul also suggested that the first thing shown was actually a NBA game featuring the Charlotte Hornets. Uh, on this, the the jury's still out. I tried and failed to find a TV guide for Galaxy in January. 1995. I got February, but uh, it's a bit too late. So basically, what I've managed to find is that the broadcast began at 4pm. Before that, there was some file footage of uh, some beach volleyball. So, I mean, you might want to call that the first thing shown uh, on Australian pay TV. But the article I found didn't actually say what kicked it off. But it did say that at 5.30, so that's uh, after the four o'clock start, uh, there was a broadcast of golf from the Philippines. So basically, you had a one and a half hour window. Uh, so it may have been the sedan car racing, as I originally found. It may have been Alonzo Morning at all. Uh, 
if anyone can answer that, let us know. But other than that, we will get on with the show. So thanks to Kyle and Paul for getting in contact. And over the course of this chapter and beyond, if you do hear anything that uh, you have some more information on uh, or you can tell us why we're wrong, please send it in. Facebook, Twitter, we're on Instagram now. I'll have to let Andrew tell you the handle because I'm not sure of it. And of course, email us at therugbyleaguedigest at gmail.com. Okay, hope you enjoy today's show. Welcome back to the Rugby League Digest. I'm Michael Adams, here with Andrew Paskin. How's it going, Andy? Mate, I'm very, very well. Uh, I'm the same, so let's get stuck into it. We got very down and dirty with the media goings-on in a non-rugby league sense in our last chapter. We're going to do the same in rugby league media this chapter. Uh, and i got to say, I think the way it played out in the media in April probably had more effect than any other single factor in the way the game just almost fell apart during the Super League War. I remember it well. Seismic rumblings. And so we're going to spend this chapter looking into that, looking at the media across different mediums, across different news organisations, and give you a sense of how it all played out. Because it was when we talk about toxicity during the Super League War, this is what we're talking about. Competing media outlets, spinning their own propaganda, long-time journalist friends falling out permanently, all the rest of it. Anyone who was there at the time will remember it well. Very distasteful. Before we start with the actual media, though, we have to look at competing controlling bodies because a lot of this was built on two competing lines of propaganda. So Super League, we don't really need to talk about it at this point in our story because they owned the media that was representing them. So most of that propaganda was coming out through their own media. Uh, But it's funny that the one word we remember 25 years later is vision. Yep. If you ask a thousand rugby league fans to talk about Super League in one word, that would be the word that came out of it, unless it was greed or, you know, <laughs> some, <laughs> but that, that word cloud uh, would have vision in, you know, 28 point bold. Uh, it, it's the one thing that everyone remembers from the Super League war. And it's so funny that we mentioned it in an earlier episode that, a news limited memo went round not long after the war started to get rid of the word vision. So funny when one misstep can kill the whole thing, like yeah. Hillary Clinton and deplorable. Yeah, yeah, like exactly. that type of thing. Yeah. One little misstep. Yeah. You're so right. So vision was a key part of the concept for about a month, but yet 25 years later, here we are, and it's still all we talk about. But this is the thing that makes me laugh. We get to saying how uh, John Reber got a hard time and everything. He's a, he's a good operator in rugby league terms. Someone just told him, use this word vision. It'll make it sound more professional. So he's, yeah. he's run with it. Yeah. And buried the whole thing. <laughs> From the ARL side of things, it was all about the people's game. The ARL were representing the people. We were fighting to you know, stop these media magnates taking your game away. The people at Rothmans, yeah. the people at the Lees Club. So this statement by Ken Arthurson in the Rugby League Week in mid-1995 illustrates well the pitch from the ARL. My only message to him is don't try to pinch our sport and get on with what he does well and let us do what we do well. I don't mind if he negotiates for the television rights, but I'm worried about this guy trying to hijack our sport. And why wouldn't the everyday punters buck about what his organisation is trying to do to the game? This guy has millions. How much more does he want? Millions. <laughs> <laughs> the word pinch is hilarious. Too. Yeah. He's trying to pitch the game. And obviously there's a lot of truth to that. And at a base level, you can understand public distaste for you know media moguls coming in and 
buying the game. This is my beef about the whole thing, though. Just the intellectual dishonesty. Everything he says is correct, but then to make out Kerry Pack as some sort of hero. Yeah. Like, just, they're both bad. Let's just admit it. Exactly. And these business forces were alive, well, running the game in 1995, regardless of who was actually controlling the game. The other side of it is that the ARL quickly pivoted to a position of they're trying to take your club away. They're trying to reduce the number of Sydney clubs to make that the selling point against News Limited, even though it has been documented by us in this series and it was well documented at the time that, A, there were significant problems with the number of Sydney teams. It was not deemed that that was going to be viable long-term and the ARL themselves had taken steps to address that before then you know, seemingly backtracking in the aim of their public relations campaign. And this was all part of this people's game uh, line that they were pushing, which again, like, I don't think it was a, a cynically mounted campaign. I think there's a lot of truth in it, but there are a lot of flaws in that argument and they do open themselves up to cries of hypocrisy. And again, Arthurson really was pushing the line of you know being about the fans. The feel like, people I feel sorry for are the average fans and you know making the statement when was the last time you saw Ken Kelly or Rupert Murdoch on the hill eating a pie <laughs> which gave Tim Sheens like a, an easy layup well when was the last time you saw Ken Arthurson on the hill eating a pie they're insulated in their nice air conditioned boxes drinking their sponsors beer or chardonnay i feel like every rugby league person is drinking penfolds yeah. <laughs> i didn't Claire. know i didn't know that there was another wine apart from penfolds <laughs> And the other part of it was the ARL as the traditional custodians of the game. And, and on that side of things, I can see where they're coming from. It did lead to some uh, attempted skullduggery from Super League, which could have been interesting if they'd have proceeded with it. So at the time that Super League was happening, there was the first trophy given out by the league in 1908, which was called the Royal Agricultural Shield, was actually in the possession of Daly Messenger the, the third, Daly Messenger's grandson. And there was a push to get that in the league hands, but there was some squabbling going on. And at a certain point, Super League actually became involved with the possibility of the Royal Agricultural Shield becoming the Super League trophy when that competition got off the ground. (laughs) Which uh, would have done the job of getting the ARL offside, but could you think of a less fitting trophy for Super League? (laughs) We're going to China with the Royal Agricultural (laughs) Trophy. (laughs) But let's get to the main part of this episode, which is to how it all played out in the press. And there are a couple of events that took place on two days in the first week of April 1995, which really set the scene. So the first of these was a press conference held by the ARL on Wednesday, the 5th of April 1995, at which the ARL were going to put their case and talk about why they should be the ones controlling the game and what they had to offer. So they made a number of key mistakes in the planning of this press conference. The first was the choice of venue. So they chose to use the building which had been the birthplace of rugby league in Australia, Bateman's Crystal Hotel, which is where uh, the initial planning meeting took place. Every birthplace of rugby league is a pub. (laughs) (laughs) Over the years, that became the Tatler Hotel, uh, but by the early 90s was in a state of disrepair and was actually a barely used storeroom. So... They chose this venue because of its links to the game's history, which is great in the planning, but in the execution, it was a dingy, unused space that 
had seen much better days. Which, I mean, talk about giving them a free kick. <laughs> Everything that they're trying to propaganda is about you, you represent visually for them. Exactly. So they made the exact opposite point than what they were trying to make <laughs> with the way they used this venue. So Mike Corman's Super League book sets the scene. The hotel was long gone, in its place a dingy storeroom. A giant cutout of the Winfield Cup trophy bearing the likenesses of League Legends Norm Proven and Arthur Summons leant against the doorway. Inside, many of Norman Arthur's contemporaries lined the decrepit walls. The aim was tradition. The ambience was gloom and decay. <laughs> In his uh, Daily Telegraph editorial, a couple of days after the press conference, Piers Ackerman, who we're going to hear more about shortly, <laughs> said, Within minutes of Arthurson's arrival, he was waxing lyrical about the charms of the historical, should that be hysterical, site. As he sat behind a couple of sheets of painted plywood, under a mouldy ceiling decorated with a patchwork of suspicious-looking stains. Jeez. <laughs> oh, uh, as compares for this press conference, the league decided to go with Paul Vorden and Peter Sterling, uh, you know, fresh from footy show hosting duties, which Fatty admits himself that he didn't have any experience in this type of occasion. He hasn't got any experience in footy show hosting. <laughs> well, maybe that was the league's The guy couldn't ski after 10 <laughs> years at the snowfields. <laughs> So again, they, they had no experience or really skills in comparing this type of occasion. Piers Ackerman also notes the relentless, mindless assault from tired old Tina Turner beating out on the ghetto speakers. <laughs> that was early days in the flogging of that dead horse. <laughs> that horse still had a breath in it. And probably the, the height of the, the laying it on thick the ARL did was to have 50 schoolchildren in football uniforms walk out and sit at the feet of Ken Arthurson, as he said, ladies and gentlemen, meet the future of Australian rugby league, <laughs> which, which even the ARL devotees in the audience were, were snickering at. <laughs> and so this, the, you know, the amateurish hosts, the kids, the decaying venue, all of this would be fine if you were holding this press conference for, you know, friendly media or maybe, you know, other clubs or you know, it was, if it was just a kind of closed house kind of event. But instead, this was not only open to any media, but media who were representing your direct competition in this war. Yeah. So as a result, the situation quickly got out of hand. When we talked about Adam Ritson, we talked about this press conference that he was basically shut down by Arthurson when he attempted to answer a question and the response wasn't to Arthurson's liking. It was embarrassing, wasn't it? And this led to Piers Ackerman saying, hang on, let him answer the question. You know, Arthurson shut it down. And that's when Paul Vorton intervened and led to the, the most famous moment in this press conference. So, <laughs> See, you said the vision is the word everyone thinks about. I think about this. <laughs> so Paul Vorton got in the mic and said, okay, that's it. And Ackerman said, hang on. And Vorton replied, no, that's it. I've been told to bring it to an end. Ackerman said, by whom? Vorton said, um, by me, okay. <laughs> and then he turned away from the mic but the mic must have been still in earshot because everyone in the room could hear him say fat heap of shit <laughs> about Piers Ackerman that's why I love fatty forever and ever <laughs> yeah because it, it should be noted that Piers Ackerman is one of the all-time pricks of Australian journalism well just the um, what's editorializing mate but um <laughs> But uh, that name alone, yeah. is, there a less, is there a less rugby league name? No, and he, there was rarely a less rugby league man to the <laughs> point that 
he had no uh, knowledge or interest in rugby league and was just there as the you know as a Daily Telegraph correspondent. Went back to the office, went to the sports editor Col Allen, and said, "I've just been insulted by a man named Fatso Vaughan." <laughs> That makes it even funnier. <laughs> that makes it even funnier. But like, that's fatty to a T, totally authentic. That's fatty to the T, but it's not what was required of no, this no, occasion. No, no, probably a bad look. Not a good look. <laughs> that's her Vaughan. Should have had um, Ray Martin comparing. Yeah, I mean, that would have been much better. Or a press officer, maybe. You know, someone that could handle such an occasion. <laughs> uh, and this was a very bad look. And it allowed Piers Ackerman a full-page column to trash the ARL and their tactics. So he said, When I made an attempt to get the question answered at this sham press conference, Mr. Arthurson wanted to know which organisation I worked for. Really, this sort of intimidatory nonsense went out with the Soviet Union years ago. But given the rest of the ARL's backward-looking strategies, it's not surprising that such bullying tactics survive at the very top of this organisation. So far, he's not provided the apology he and the foul-mouthed Vorton undoubtedly owe. Their behaviour may be acceptable in some hick sports locker room, but it's not of the standard expected in Sydney, the Olympic City, in 1995. A game with the Olympics. <laughs> I mean, that guy's not a rugby league guy. No. Uh, and as I said, this was one of two events that happened within two days of each other. The second inarguably did more damage and arguably was even more amateurish, and that was the notorious footy show panel uh, that Thursday night that featured John Rebo as well as a number of other panellists that Rebo described as an ambush. And it's probably the first time in rugby league history that that word is actually used accurately. We've always said it was unfair on him, but, I mean, it really exposed him as what he was, a, a football guy. Like, I mean, he should have been prepared for yeah. a tough time. I must have watched this because I was watching the footy show every week, but I can't really remember much about this. I remember the whole thing... And being like blown away by it, my memory doesn't have the ins and outs of it. Yeah, just the event, mm. and we cannot find it anywhere on the internet. Yeah, we can't find anyone on Twitter that's got it. You've gone to the archives of the Tom Brock people. You've gone to the State Library archives. This is like there's a Pruder film for Rugby League, yeah. and it's disappeared. I know. So if anyone does have a lead on this, a lot of people have kindly linked to Rebo's Brisbane Footy Show appearance. That's a very important document in its own right. But this is really the holy grail for this series. So if anyone has a lead on the April footy show appearance by John Rebo, uh, please hit us up. But let's just set the scene. So this episode gives us the title of this chapter, Taking the Game to China, because in both of our memories, it was such a suggestion by Rebo that led to, you know, catcalling and booing from the audience. <laughs> but it still said in the most smart arsey tones to this yeah. day, like, how's Beijing going? Yeah. Like, talk about PR missteps. Yeah. This one makes the ARL look like the best ever. But, like, at its heart, like, it, it's like a fine idea. Yeah, but the wrong forum <laughs> and the wrong delivery. Yeah. So let, let's break down what happened on this episode. So basically, the panel consisted of the four hosts, who were then Fatty and Sturlo, along with Ray Hadley and Steve Roach. Uh, joining them was Ken Arthurson, uh, Chris Murphy, uh, the ARL lawyer was there. Well, Chris Murphy was my former boss, friend and mentor. Anything I say about him is going to have the proper veneration and be basically biased. But he's an example of an actual intellectual giant mm. showing up a football guy <laughs> running rings around him. Uh, Phil Gould was the other ARL representative and then on the Super League side you had Rebo as well as Chris Johns who was the players representative and Rebo said to Johns as they were preparing to go out that it 
had the feeling of Christians being fed to lions and that's pretty much how it proceeded. So in John Rebo's words, I suspected it was going to be a snake pit for me and they said they were going to be 10 players, five from each side, as well as their normal panel, plus Ken Arthurson. All of a sudden there's an audience of 200 people and I'm surrounded. I was really pissed off about it. I felt like I'd been set up. I can cop a bloody bagging, but I thought that was unfair. <laughs> Hang on. 200 footy show people in the audience isn't exactly uh, the cream of the crop. <laughs> yeah, if you can't handle it. <laughs> but so it hadn't long started when Ray Hadley launched into a tirade. That was to last most of the episode. Very angry and belligerent, very unlike Ray Hadley <laughs> in general. And Rebo basically struggling to get a word in, being shouted down anytime he tried to make a point. Look, I think it was unfair how they did it to him, but again, it exposed him yep. for what he was. Mm. Yeah, and I think that the Brisbane footy show appearance, the one where you can see him going toe-to-toe with Mario Fennec, he comes ac- across as particularly smug in that environment. And to contrast that with uh, a national press club appearance he gave at the end of April, where he was measured, he made several salient points, and it was hard to come away from that with not... Uh, some respect for what Super League was trying to achieve, even if you still doubted the messengers. Sydney Footy Show was the most watched show around just about, and this pretty much buried the whole concept. Yeah, and so I think that needed to be kept in mind, knowing that it was an ambush. And again, you know, we're, we're talking in hindsight. I don't know how I'd handle that situation when it's live and but you're it's copying just, from it's, all sides. Look, it's easy Monday morning quarterbacking it. Hadley teed off. He was followed by Gould. Chris Murphy had a big go as well. Uh, and by the end of it, when Steve Roach asked a question, Rebo like put his head in his hands like out of frustration. Yeah, but like, that's not what a leader does. No, exactly. Like I said, easier said than done. You're not, yeah. not there in front of 200 footy show watches. <laughs> and it also brings across that smugness and that perceived arrogance. Well, you have the quote in the research there where Chris Murphy owns him. Yeah, so basically Murphy asked a question about the legal side of things, like with the loyalty agreements and all of that. Uh, so you've got an eminent lawyer. Yeah, exactly. Um, Murphy mentioned the the concept of duress and the way those contracts were signed, to which Rebo replied, it's silly getting a view from Chris Murphy. He's employed, he does work for you. Chris Murphy took offence to that and said, that is incorrect, I'm owned by no one. Unlike yourself, I'm not owned by Rupert Murdoch. Uh, the audience cheered and he said, they're not going to put gold in my pocket. I don't work for Mr Packer either. On his worst day, he's 10 steps ahead of John Rebo. Mm. Phil Gould uh, got a shot in and... Uh, poor old Steve Edmed, not for the last time, was <laughs> was the, the face of it. So um, he said, we had one chief executive ring me today and I don't want to embarrass the player because he's been a great player for a long time, Steve Edmed. I don't want to embarrass him. <laughs> <laughs> he said to me that he was going to offer Steve Edmed $40,000 maybe to have one more season next year. Steve Edmed just signed an agreement with the Super League for $1 million for three years. I mean, I don't see where that is getting together a talented Super League competition with the concept you have. Don't want to embarrass the bloke. <laughs> For those wondering, the Steve Edman chapter is still coming. <laughs> it's not too far away. But um, that seemed unnecessary. Well, I think it's a brilliant point to expose the ludicrousness of yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, it definitely worked. If I was Steve Edman, I'd be like, joke all you want. Yeah. I'm still living in the three houses I bought. Well, it's, it's kind of like Craig Coleman, who was the other... Name always mentioned for you know getting a massive deal from Super League at the twilight of his career. Uh, he ended up 
um, doing some renovations in his house, which included installing a bar, which a sign said the Rupert Murdoch bar. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the show devolved from there and was punctuated by Vorton at the end of the show, doing a quick poll of the audience saying, does the public want a Super League? And no came the mass reply with one solitary voice saying, yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's like a Simpsons episode. (laughs) Um, So shout out to Mike Coleman, who has provided the most definitive account of that footy show appearance. I wish I could remember it, man. I wish I could remember it in detail. So again, if we are able to track it down, maybe we'll have to do a little mini episode recapping it, you know, in full or something. So the aftermath is what really... I think this is what made Rebo public enemy number one more than any other single event. Definitely. The head of the most eyes, the most viewers. Yeah. So it did its job in that respect of really whipping the fans up and making the media environment even uglier than it was already becoming. But from the other side of things, everyone involved at the footy show realized that it was a bad look for them as well. So Ray Hadley actually felt embarrassed about the way he handled himself and, you know, said he hasn't watched it since because of... If Ray Hadley's saying that, it must have been bad. But it it did lead to a backing down from Channel 9. So Graham Richardson said, We were out-propagandered. News was brilliant in that area. They had us in the press and we couldn't hit back on TV. We couldn't let Fatty and the boys loose on them on the footy show because it had become a ratings liability. Okay, they had a go once, but we saw what had happened on 2UE where Super League saturation was costing ratings. What would have happened, do you think, if he didn't appear, just refused to appear. I think it would have been to the good. Yeah, surely. As I said, that National Press Club address, which I think he gave in late April, uh, that probably got 120th of the ratings of the footy show. I don't remember it. Yeah, so it was a daytime thing. So basically it was a a weekly lunch, might still be going today, I'm not sure, held in Canberra, where a speaker will give a talk uh, in front of a, you know, Audience of journalists eating their lunch. But this is a thing. I mean, does um, Flo and Joe from uh, Walls End in Newcastle watch uh, the National Press Club or do they watch the anti-ads on the footy show? They watch the anti-ads on the footy show, but what they also do is buy the Telegraph right. and can read Rebo's measured comments laying out the case for Super League without being attacked by people who don't want to hear it. Mm. Um, and we have to remember that the Sydney thing is only part of the story. So one of the striking things to me about that Brisbane footy show appearance is the reaction Rebo got when he walked out, which was wildly enthusiastic from the audience. So, you know, there's 200 footy show audience (laughs) members and there's 200 footy show audience (laughs) members. But one thing that footy show appearance demonstrated was the fact that everyone was taking sides. So everyone had a stake one way or the other in this fight. And I guess that goes back to how little of the Australian media wasn't controlled by Murdoch or Packer. So there was almost always an interest one way or the other. Obviously, the News Limited side of things is what we remember to this day. They still own the Daily Telegraph. It's still synonymous with the Super League war is that media bias. And we are going to look at that. But I wanted to look at the ARL side of things first. And their method of attack was through Big League, which obviously is, you know, bringing a toothpick to a (laughs) gunfight. So in between the lineups of uh, the weekend's games. So Big League came out really strong in that first issue after Super League broke with the famous cover of a boy in football uniform sitting in a locker room with the words, 
don't take away my footy team. It's just funny thinking that big league's the big gun, you know? Wait till big league gets a hold of them. <laughs> and so in that uh, first issue published on April 5, Ken Arthurson's editorial statement said, Remember, it's your game. The game of rugby league belongs to you, the people of Australia, and the loyal supporter of the code. It does not belong to any single media proprietor, and it never should, you know, going back to that line of propaganda. And throughout the rest of that issue, the various columnists really pushed the ARL's case hard. I don't remember having much of a say in our game (laughs) prior to this. Yeah, exactly. And there were some particularly transparent events to drive the agenda in that issue. So in Tony McGahey's column, he wrote about the failings of Super League. There are so many unanswered questions. Are there enough players? Are there enough teams, coaches and officials to run them? What about grounds to play on and adequate referees and medical staff? What about insurance and everything else? What happens to a player who breaks his leg and can't play again? How about player unions? All these things are absolute basics to start a professional competition, implying that Super League hadn't thought about any of these things. Yeah. When you can see it in all their planning that you know one of the key reasons from a player perspective was more benefits, better stake in the game, and all these other things that they're talking about would necessarily have come into the concept. Absolutely. I mean, as McGahey says, they're basic fundamentals of running a competition. <laughs> um, Bill Morty going as far to call Super League the Mickey Mouse competition. <laughs> Implying the ARL's fair income. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, so from the Super League perspective, ARL was the pub comp. And from the ARL's perspective, Super League was Mickey Mouse. <laughs> well, if you can't trust a boxing promoter. <laughs> and Craig Morty, who was the big league editor at the time, and he was the editor when I was there for work experience the next year. I never knew Bill Morty, but I just know from the stories the way he's talked about. So Craig Morty seems, from my experience and the way he writes here, to be cut from the same sort of cloth, the, what Ian Head's described as rough-hewn charm. Mm-hmm. So he certainly had a bit of that. And one of the the controversies about it all was Bradley Clyde was actually writing a column for Big League from the start of 1995. As soon as Super League broke, that column was axed. And Craig Morty said it had nothing to do with Super League. He said, We tried Bradley as a columnist because he's one of the best players in the world, but the impact of his column wasn't quite what we'd hoped for. After a month's trial, it was decided that Bradley's column would not continue. That's the only reason behind our decision. Every rugby league ghost written column sucks ever, <laughs> except for Steve Mortimer's in the old days. Uh, and in that same issue, there was an inset picture of Paul Keating on the cover of Big Leagues with the headline, PM must act for the people, with Craig Morty writing inside. What are the people saying, Mr. Keating? We'll tell you. They want a hero, someone who will stand up to Mr. Murdoch and his dollars to protect the very fibre of the sport of rugby league. Does that not conflict with Tina Turner's We Don't Need Another Hero? <laughs> She is the, the goddess yeah. of rugby league. And, and as we've seen, provides the guidelines for rugby league future. <laughs> so big league came out hard, as all media organisations did. They quite quickly retreated from the battle and went back to team lists and you know on-field news. So whether it was a directive from the league, whether it was looking at figures of how many people were buying the mag over the weeks, um, something happened where they realised that they needed to play more of a straight bat. And on grand final day, Ken Arthurson had his column as usual, made no mention of anything that had happened with regards to Super League throughout that year and just focused on the game. And, you know, that was the way that Big League played it after going hard in the early weeks. So, yeah, so that was the league's main form of retaliation against the Murdoch media. 
But the Murdoch media was obviously a much bigger entity. Uh, and in Sydney, that was largely through the Daily Telegraph that the Super League propaganda was coming through. Uh, and it's one of the, those little ironies you get in this chapter that, that Rupert Murdoch had owned the Daily Telegraph since 1972, buying it off Frank Packer. And at that point, the Telegraph was viewed as an anti-Labor propaganda machine because Frank Packer was pushing his own interests through it. So the story goes that they had a standing headline, you know, in the presses ready to roll, Labor split looms. <laughs> so, yeah, the idea of this, you know, Murdoch propaganda certainly didn't begin with him and it was coming from the Packer side well before Murdoch even got started. Yeah. And so the tactic of going hard against the ARL actually came from beyond the paper even. So it was News Limited consultants suggesting that news should use their media outlets to, you know, plant negative stories and try to undermine the ARL that way. And if you see the coverage of the war in those early weeks, that is definitely something that was followed through. If you look at the cover stories of the Daily Telegraph in that first week of April, every day of the week bar the Saturday or maybe the Friday, sorry, um, Super League was the front page story. Got a lot of respect for the News Limited journalists that were ARL proponents and stood up for their uh, independence. Well, and, and yeah, that's something that gets forgotten is that definitely happened. So one of the things News Limited did was to draw up a list of, you know, friends and foes in the Australian media. And not all News Limited journalists found themselves on the friends list. So Tim Prentice was a Telegraph writer who was viewed as being unfavourable towards Super League. So a sampling of the, the cover stories on the Telegraph that first week of April. Monday, April 3, Raiders snub league chiefs. Tuesday, April 4, ARL warns Starley could start this year. Wednesday, April 5, three clubs sign mass defections to Star League. Thursday, April 6, World Series, British want Super League playoffs. Friday, April 7, World Coup, Super League, new era. British bit off more than they can chew with. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was quite um, striking to look at those um, editions of the Daily Telegraph in a row when you're like, really, for a whole week, yeah. there's no story more worthy of the front page than what was going on in a sports competition. Well, given what we saw with the News of the World debacle, is it a major <laughs> surprise? <laughs> <laughs> the Telegraph editors actually have rejected the notion of bias um, using the example of keeping Bob Fulton and Phil Gould on as columnists in the Telegraph. But in a sense, that like does the job for them. It makes them be able to refute the charge of bias by giving column space to people who are clearly biased in the other direction yeah. and then allow their own columnists to, to run with the, the news agenda. I don't think having a couple of ex-player columns matches up with seven headlines on the front page. <laughs> Cole Allen, who was the sports editor, goes as far to say, I admit in the first two weeks our coverage was enthusiastic. Which <laughs> is putting it mildly. But the funny thing was that Super League brought about almost an instant turning of the tables where it had long been criticised as being an ARL mouthpiece in the early 90s that, you know, anytime there was a, an ARL decision or anything like that, the Telegraph accepted it, ran with it, shouted down any competing viewpoints, whereas the Sydney Morning Herald was viewed as interrogating every rugby league decision and, you know, rummaging through the books to find scandals. Well, 
just as an example, how did the Telegraph get the New South Wales Blues team the day before it was released every single year? <laughs> but probably the, the one person most emblematic of News Limited bias was Peter Fralingos, who became the, the face of this bias because of his seemingly overnight conversion from being an ARL cheerleader to someone vehemently supportive of Super League. Was Fralingos the chief of sport then? Uh, he was the head rugby league writer. Senior writer or something, yeah. yeah. I know he was revered. Yeah, exactly. And he had a long-standing friendship with John Quayle that was you know, destroyed by Super League, and I don't think they ever repaired that. But interestingly enough, in Ian Heads and Norm Tasker's new book, Ian mentions the story of having dinner at John Quayle's place with Peter Falingos and their partners on a night in early 1995 where there was talk of a you know, pending raid by News Limited uh, and Peter Falingos going, oh, what, what am I going to do? At that point, he'd been left out of the loop, so he had no knowledge of what was going on behind the scenes. He was on the whiteboard, was he? Yeah. So he'd written a number of very negative articles towards Super League. The most famous of those had the headline, Super League, it won't work. Not a believer in the vision. Yeah. And so one of his arguments was that the 2010 competition needed to be given a chance to settle in. So he rejected criticism of too many teams and said, just give it a chance. Uh, that was his line about the way the competition was progressing. Then at the time, he was a 2UE panellist as well as writing for The Telegraph. 2UE that era was the premier station, right? Yeah. So Phil Gould, who was also working for 2UE, uh, wrote this in his book, Good as Gould. Peter Fralingos was working with me on 2UE on Sunday, April 2. For the first two hours of our broadcast that day, he was extremely supportive of the Australian Rugby League, as I had known him to be for the past 20 years. Sometimes I thought he had been blindly supportive of the ARL, but at least his loyalty seemed assured. A phone call to 2UE on that afternoon between 1 to 2pm saw Fralingos return to the News Limited offices immediately. By the next morning, he was the Sydney journalist leading the browbeating for Super League, his declarations on radio the previous day of supporting the ARL forgotten. He continued in that role for the rest of the battle with Super League as the ARL struggled to make any headway at all in its attempt to get its point of view and the truth into any News Limited newspaper. That's how quickly and how much of a media and propaganda issue it became. So we've never really got the full story about what occurred in this office. Obviously, Peter Fralingos isn't in a position to give us that story now. His explanation for it doesn't really hold water in my view. So he said that the fact of the matter is that for reasons my employers have explained to me, News Limited's executives chose to keep me out of the loop until then. When I came back to the office that Sunday afternoon, that was the first time I had it laid out for me. It was the first time I'd been told the concept and seen a proposal. Easy to Monday morning call about this as well. It's like put yourself in his position. Do you want to keep your job as this power-wielding, expense-accounted head of sport for the national paper mm. or be unemployed? <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's fine. And you'll see... Ken Arthurson coming out and saying that he didn't really hold it against Falingos. George Piggins, of all people, saying the same thing, that he could understand what he did. So you can understand the rationale, you can understand doing it, but the explanation for it, that's yeah. what I find a bit unbelievable. I was against Super League, then they showed me the proposal. And <laughs> I love the vision. <laughs> and in The Telegraph that week, he talked about the way, you know, yes, I'd, I'd been supportive of the 20-team comp, and he said, like many others, I've been of the opinion the 20-team premiership should have been given the entire season before judgments on his success or failures were made. But after only four weeks of the premiership, the elite players, prominent coaches and inner-city fans have voted with their feet. 
And it's like all those criticisms were coming out and you were rejecting them. Then suddenly four weeks and you've, you've seen enough. Yeah. <laughs> and he stayed with the two-week continuous call team, which created a, a very volatile experience. Ray Hadley called the commentary box a tinderbox. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about Ron Casey being obnoxious, but yeah. compared to Ray Hadley, he's uh, Shirley Temple. <laughs> but interestingly enough, Fralingos actually had an offer to switch sides with Kerry Packer, who had a stake in Rugby League Week, offering him a job with Rugby League Week and you know presumably some Channel 9 work as well if he switched sides and, you know, maintained his positive view of the ARL. So it would have been fine if he spread propaganda for the other side, yeah. spreading <laughs> propaganda for this side. Exactly. That's, that's where the hypocrisy comes into it again. You know, yeah, Peter Fulingos, he, you know, what a turncoat. And it's like, oh, but he's, he's got a chance to, you know, <laughs> stay on our side. But funnily enough, Rugby League Week, so part owned by Packer, uh, definitely in the early days of the war, it was, I'd say, quite pro-ARL. So its first cover after the story broke was an image of a bombed-out Dresden yeah. with the, the cover line, A Game in Ruins. And you had various columnists you know, speaking out quite dismissively about Super League. It was the shock of the whole thing. Yeah. That was a natural reaction. Yeah, exactly. But once everything settled down, Rugby League Week, I think more than most, played a, a straight bat. They weren't afraid to criticise Super League. Super League got regular criticism, but so did the ARL. That's why I loved it so much. It was legit. Yeah. And, and I think... Again, I could be wrong on this, but my opinion of reading all this media is Rugby League Week were probably the first to push the line that both sides were as bad as each other. Yeah. Um, with the way they were, not maybe not in concept or philosophy, but in the way their tactics were playing out during the war. So Falingos continued to push the Super League line throughout the war, maybe not as vocally, obviously, as in those early days, but it definitely like, created a stain on his reputation and his integrity for like quite a while. Like I remember at that point in the 90s, he was perceived as being, you know, kind of, what's the word? He's In the pocket. Yeah, and, and that integrity being called into question. That seemingly faded away with his death. Uh, you know, he's since been honoured with an award at the Dally M's. He was named in, into the Media Hall of Fame. Every journalist speaks about him with glowing uh, recollections. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I think that's a good thing that with the passage of time, we remember the journalist he was and that, you know, this is just a kind of... I mean, this war didn't help anybody. No, exactly. Especially but it, journalists. But it did enhance the, the reputations of some journos. One of those was Phil Rothfield, who yeah. was actually prepared to quit his position at The Telegraph because he felt that he was being pushed into you know, spreading the party line. And he took a stance and said, I want to be able to report accurately without pressure. Always respect Buzz for that. And and so, you know, that's how that played out. So whatever you want to say about Buzz, and we've had plenty to say about Buzz, he, uh, you know, <laughs> he stood up in this case. Didn't you try to ban me from retweeting Buzz on the Twitter? <laughs> the <Rugby League laughs> that, that stands, that stands. <laughs> if you want to go back and find some tweets from 1995, you can spread those. <laughs> But so the other thing News Limited did was really control access. So we saw that list of, you know, that naughty and nice list of journalists that went through to journalists being denied entry to media events. They hired Rebecca Wilson to essentially be their guard dog, uh, to be their press officer who, you know, provided access. And you had people like Roy Masters being blacked out of 
coverage from News Limited. There's an old school journal. Yeah. Still um, some left. And yeah, Roy Masters very much on the ARL side, but I think he was authentic. Quite but it's authentic yeah, though. yeah, exactly. Of Rebecca Wilson, he said, Miss Wilson is strong, but she's no diplomat. At the time, I believe that if Miss Wilson was sent to the United Nations, she would ignite World War Three. <laughs> she was a player in the biggest boys' club there ever was, Sydney Sports Journalism. Yeah, yeah. And it kicked heads. Yeah, exactly. And um, I don't think she gets the proper respect. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, see, my personal feelings on her journalism was I don't think we should automatically give respect for being able to get as grubby as everyone <laughs> else. You know, it's like it, I, I respect the fact that she, you know, thrived in this boys club and, and broke ground in that respect but you know what wasn't the biggest fan of her, her journalism and the ARL soon followed tact and hired Jeff Prenter to be their own media officer who similarly acted as a gatekeeper and in one quite petty juvenile display after the first court case he you know started berating news limited journalists and telling certain ones of them that they'd need to find a new career <laughs> So moving on from print media, if you look at the radio landscape, it was definitely Ray Hadley who was the the biggest cheerleader for the ARL. And 2UE certainly played a part in whipping up that public frenzy to the point where not long after the war started, they had to ban call-ins about Super League. (laughs) Can you imagine? Oh my God. Can you imagine it? Like The thing about sports talk radio is the call-ins, it's four hours of the exact same call on a particular topic. Like that would have been so tiresome so quickly. But I mean, Ray Hadley and and all these shock jocks, their lifeblood is frenzy. Yeah. Whipping up morons into a frenzy. (laughs) (laughs) But he soon became persona non grata among Super League players and as well as News Limited officials with it going as far as when Ricky Stewart with the other Canberra players challenged in court their right to play for Australia and was questioned on the fact that he said that he didn't mind missing out for Australia in an interview with Ray Hadley. Ricky Stewart said, I said that because I didn't want Ray Hadley to see how upset I was. Basically, I just don't like the bloke. (laughs) That's surprising. I thought him and uh, Sticky and Hadley would get on well. Mm. Alan Jones was the other one who wrote an ad for the ARL that was broadcast on the Sunday night of the April Fool's weekend that, funnily enough, his ad pitch actually addressed the players directly and said to the players, don't sign until you've spoken with the ARL. Like how many footy players in 1995 were tuning in to 2UE late on Sunday night? (laughs) I guess maybe if the footy coverage is still going. (laughs) But Channel 9 were equally guilty in the propaganda. And you could argue that in those early weeks, they pushed their party line just as much as the Telegraph were pushing the News Limited line. I don't look back with any disrespect on this. Like, all staring in love and war, and this was war. It's like, it's expected to me. Both sides. It, it's expected, but it's... It's not pretty, but... It, it's not pretty, but it's... I can't think of a situation before or since when it was this blatant, when it was this in your face. But the point is, everyone in, involved did themselves a discredit. You had footy show correspondents being labelled goons <laughs> because of the way they carried their argument. You had Alex Mitchell in the Sydney Morning Herald asking for an Australian Broadcasting Authority investigation into Channel 9 bias. Pre-Jeff Toovey. Uh, saying that a coverage of the beleaguered ARL took on Nuremberg rally proportions. 
And a win rugby league show being taken off air for a week because Sean McRae, the Canberra trainer, appeared as a panellist and criticised the ARL-only origin teams. I think I didn't mention my call. <laughs> um, funnily enough, it was Peter Sterling was the exception to this. So there was a view that he hadn't declared his allegiance either way. Yeah, but I really respect Sterling's journalism. Like, he's the only ex-player that treats it like Roy Masters did, like a career, and mm. he has respect for journalistic integrity. And I think his heart was actually what is best for the game. And yeah, I, it is. I, I it always think, has been. Yeah, so I think he could definitely see a need for some of the things Super League was bringing about and didn't see a sense in Agreed. just trashing it, you know, for no reason. He's always been that way. Best analyst in the game for mine, still. The use of the word, the phrase for mine, um, is Peter Stelling-esque. <laughs> the other thing that the Channel 9 bias did was to open up questions of hypocrisy. And that's the other thing. There are so many glass houses <laughs> oh, yeah. in, in this in this war. The only winner was O'Brien's gloves. <laughs> so from the Channel 9 perspective, there was this talk about you know respecting the game and the traditions of the game when they were delivering 43 minutes of rugby league football every Sunday night. I can still remember the feeling of fury watching that. So uh, I'll read. This was a, a Mike Gibson column in The Telegraph on the 3rd of April. So was that that early they were doing the 43 minutes? That was from the early 90s. So I felt like it was only after the no, war. No, so Andrew Denton in like 92, 93 launched a campaign, Bring Back the 37, to get a full match replay on Channel 9. Think so, about that. Yeah, so basically as soon as Channel 9 got the rights back, that's when you saw that cut-down version of the game. What were they thinking? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, so Mike Gibson explained it this way. Because at 6pm, Sunday News is the top rating program of the week. Because 60 minutes has to be on at 7.30. And because the movie has to kick off at 8.30, <laughs> Channel 9 gives rugby league fans the dregs. As it does with every sport it buys, Channel 9 packages it up the way it wants to. You cop what they give you, like it or lump it, with the blessing of the Australian Rugby League, which chooses to do business with a company that slaughters its product. Sunday night we are robbed. We get half a game of Rugby League. Not only does the Rugby League sit by and allow Channel 9 to shortchange the fans, it shortchanges itself by selling the rights for peanuts when any smart promoter would be selling it for millions more. Here, here. But let's not forget that they ran Sports Sunday from four till six. <laughs> with like fluff pieces yeah. and... Even though I used to love it, but yeah, you know, six hours of uninterrupted Iron Man coverage <laughs> on a Saturday. I mean, how do we put up with it? That's why pay TV was yeah. so enticing. It's like mm. just the bullshit we had to watch. And again, because the ARL had tied aligned themselves so closely to Packer and Channel Nine, they couldn't get away from that criticism. You see it in Mike Gibson's statement there, uh, and then Arthurson in his book. This is typical of the attitude that. Critics of the ARL could point to, he wrote, of this, you know, missing 37 minutes. It was an issue that would never die, with nine refusing to relent and critics never letting the matter drop. As if, like, <laughs> the matter should have been dropped. <laughs> but funnily enough, Mike Gibson was one who was, vo like, very vocally supportive of Super League and never copped the flack that Falingos did. I think maybe he wasn't the ARL cheerleader that Falingos had been. So Mike Gibson was a maverick. Mm, yeah. Loved his work. So Channel 7, who you have to remember at that point in time, in early 1995, it was just spoken about as Channel 7 will be the free-to-wear rights holder for Super League because Rupert Murdoch had an interest in Channel 7 and Channel 7 became, therefore, the breakers of 
Super League stories. There were so many false fate complete yeah. expectations. Yeah. Peter Moore will be the chairman. Yeah. Like, none of this was right. I, I <laughs> well, just wait for an official <laughs> announcement and then wait for that official announcement to be recanted four <laughs> weeks later. You know. Um, but do you remember the Channel 7 rival to the footy show, Hard Yards? I, I didn't mind it. So, well, you won a few people because it lasted about four weeks before being axed for terrible ratings. You know what I liked about it? Football talk. Mm. No dressing up yeah, in yeah. wigs and bloody... Yeah. Exactly. Anti-ads. And- yeah. And as it turns out, that's not what the people wanted. <laughs> but that was the, the famous program that uh, David Smith was watching when Michael O'Connor <laughs> came on air to support Super League and ended up getting a job recruiting out of it. Why don't we bring him into a parade hour <laughs> prospective signing? I was going to say, it's been a few episodes since you've trashed David Smith. What's going on? <laughs> so just as we wrap up this media section, one of my main takeaways of doing all this research was that it never was as bad as in that first month. So across all mediums, every media outlet eventually toned it down after coming out all guns blazing. So like even the Telegraph, you couldn't say that it was ever fair balanced coverage, but I think so much of the perception of bias came out of those first two weeks and the way they were covering it at the outset. But it's like every vigilante mob, it dies down quick enough. I mean, the news cycle back then wasn't 24 hours like it is now, or eight hours. Yeah, Two weeks to a month is about right for that to die down. But the other thing you get from that is that the damage was done instantly. Yeah, I always kind of looked at it as as this toxicity just kind of festered and, and got uglier throughout 1995 until everyone was just sick of the game. But really it was... It was more like a Chernobyl explosion yeah. where it was this instant thing that happened and we were all doomed. It was too late to do anything about it. Yeah, that's a bloody good way to describe it. It was rugby league Chernobyl. And that ugly media situation very quickly spread across the game. So you had John Quayle kicked out of a meeting of club executives at South Sydney Leagues Club. The official line was that club representatives wouldn't have turned up if they knew Quayle was there. Quayle, like, you know, one of the bosses of the league, walking out of the room with his tail between his legs, you know, because of everything that was going on. Shocking. Um, that led to ARL people walking out of the meeting as well. In fairness to the club bosses, do you want John Quayle glaring at you? <laughs> <laughs> Tough man. You had, like, an in- incredibly paranoid environment. Uh, I'll, I'll read this from the Rugby League Week. The rival groups are no longer prepared to discuss major coups via the telephone because they fear people may be listening in. At the top of a recent call, a Super League official inquired if the person at the other end was using a digital mobile phone because digital phones cannot be tapped. Representatives of the ARL have been issued mobile phones and members of both parties refuse to discuss some issues unless they are talking face to face. (laughs) It sounds ridiculous, but then we look at news of the world. Yeah. In June, the Sun-Herald reported uh, an attempted break-in at the Phillips Street headquarters of the Australian Rugby League is suspected. The locks to two doors were tampered with to the extent the door handles were separated from their mountings. There is considerable significance in the two doors forced. One is the former office of Bob Abbott, the ARL's man in charge of development. But Abbott has not occupied the office for more than two months. That could have just been people trying to steal the kegs <laughs> that were in there. Um, so the, the article did go on to say there's no suggestion that Super League were involved in this break. Oh, except for the innuendo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then, of course, the fans is where it really fell out and probably fell out terminally. So two weeks after the story broke, you had the sign appearing at 
North Sydney Oval, the Acrostic Palms Super League. <laughs> Selfish, ungrateful players embracing Rupert's large ego and greedily undermining establishment, which I think a second draft of that, we could get something a bit more succinct. How, how do I believe an acrostic? <laughs> and within those first couple of weeks of the story breaking in April, people like Jack Gibson predicting that the situation would lead to a vast rejection of the game from fans. Very accurate. Uh, and at the end of 1995, we're going to look into how the actual numbers and everything behind the fans dropping away. So that we're not going to do that in this chapter. But I just wanted to read a quote from Paul Sirenin's book about the way the fans felt about everything in Super League. It isn't hard to realise why the average fan took exception to the amounts of money being thrown about by both groups to recruit talent. Most of the game's diehard supporters were battling to survive on four or five hundred bucks a week, and I can see how it would have seemed obscene to them because they have to work hard for 40 hours a week while we footballers were being paid thousands for our loyalty. I feel that public sentiment is something that on some level persists to this day. Like any time there's a scandal or anything like that, it's like, oh, look look at how much money these blokes are getting. We mention it on the um, weekly show all the time. I don't think as derisively as, as some segments of the public. It's a funny sentiment that this game that we watch and gives us countless hours of joy, entertainment, yeah, yeah. the players providing that like should be getting the same as me. Yeah. You know, working. And wanting to bring them down. Yeah. <laughs> bring everyone down to the base level. That's, yeah. that's the attitude across the whole thing. Exactly. But for me, one of the saddest things of this whole saga was reading this like all play out over the course of the year and seeing it spiral and see that sheer exhaustion from members of the media. And I, th- I think that's exemplified in Ian Heads and Norm Tasker, who were both writing for Rugby League Week. Uh, Heads was also writing in the Sun Herald at the time. And, and so I thought I'd just take you through a year in the reporting of Super League by these two men to just illustrate how quickly you could see their spirits just being crushed by the, the whole saga. Awesome. So this was uh, Norm Tasker in the Rugby League Week on the 26th of April. Sport I always consider to be a communal thing. All of us who are keen on sport hate being hijacked. We hate being told by John Rebo or the Broncos or mega companies or any of the other opportunists after a quit out of all of this. Just what's good for us and for the game we follow. And when it can be so cynically said about as has this operation, then we haven't got a great deal left. Let's be honest. There are no sporting values left here. It's just business and dirty business at that. Ian Heads in the Rugby League Week on the 24th of May. In the areas of slyness, deceit, greed and bumbling ineptitude, the Super League wars of the past seven weeks are unparalleled in Rugby League's history. There are countless unsavoury and regrettable aspects, some of which are listed in the Super League file of infamy below. But as a fan of 40 years or so, my personal objection to what has happened since April 1 can be summed up succinctly enough in one observation, that the manner of the ruthless Murdoch raid and the response it has brought has just about bloody well wrecked a fine game. It will sure take some repairing. Norm Tasker on the 28th of June, also in the Rugby League Week. It has now become clear that the war has pretty much ground down to a draw, with both parties mortally wounded. Two half competitions on the plate next year will satisfy nobody and will be so much short of super, concentrating the ills rather than the strengths, that the game will suffer, perhaps irreparably. And finally, Ian Heads and the Sun Herald on the 29th of October. Goodbye at last to the season from hell. Rugby League has changed the meanings of words in this wicked season. Super will never mean the same thing as it once did. And how about loyalty? What does loyalty mean in the context of 1995? Obviously, it has something to do with vast wheelbarrows of money being pushed in the direction of men such as Malcolm Reilly and Ellery Hanley. 
It is apparently no longer anything at all about someone like Wayne Pierce giving his life to the game because he happened to love it. Broken. And that, that sentiment is expressed as much in their new book, Great Australian Sports Stories, which everyone should, of course, go out and grab if they don't have already. Uh, Norm Tasker saying that in 60 years of covering sport, the Super League war takes the cake as the most depressing affair with which I had to deal. Those two guys saw it all. Yeah. (laughs) God. And just to finish up, I wanted to talk about this idea of friendships lost. And this was Mike Gibson writing in the Daily Telegraph on the 7th of April. So many associations have been severed. So many friendships have been damaged. Over what? A game of football. So that was the 7th of April, one (laughs) week after it happened, and lifelong friendships were already like gone. I want to make a comment about this, though. Uh, Yes, it's sad. Friendships getting busted up and everything. A, how strong were the friendships to begin with? And B, it's rugby league. That was going to happen anyway, (laughs) eventually. (laughs) Uh, But yeah, you you mentioned something similar in our opening thoughts episode where you talked about like, I don't really give a shit who's not having, you know, lunch at a Chinese restaurant with someone else. Like our game, like always fell apart because of this. There's a lot of self-interest in this. Yeah. But I, I do think this loss of friendships can be seen as a symptom of something much bigger. And I do think something was severed at this point in time. And again, it was like instant. It was Chernobyl. Seven days later, though. Yeah. How, <laughs> how strong were these friendships? Well, John Rebo came out in that National Press Club address and said that he didn't lose any friendships over it. I mean, that was late April, so who knows what happened in... But those two men, Rebo and Arthurson, two realists as far as football men go, yeah. still maintain a cordial relationship. Yeah. It's the other guys that piled on yeah. <laughs> that made it worse. Um, but I, I like the uh, Fred Daly, who we've spoken about before, um, the old Labour politician and lifelong rugby league fan. Uh, I, I think he puts it best likening it to the Labour split in the 50s. <laughs> and there's something about this quote that like just reminded me so much of rugby league men. Super League has all the likeness to the Labour Party in the 50s. Mates passing each other by, split asunder. A fella I used to holiday every year with. For a time we campaigned together, same age and everything. That broke. We never spoke for 20 years. We were as close as brothers. He was for Doc Evett and I was anti-Evett. We were different sides of the faction and we never got back together until we were back in government. This has all the hallmarks of that. (laughs) So I I mentioned being quite depressed by our last chapter, looking at the the political landscape and, and how that all played out. I can honestly say that I was almost more depressed researching this chapter about how stupid all of this was. Yeah. It's in the scheme of things, it doesn't matter, right? It's not life or death, but it's a big part of our lives, so it does matter. Yeah, you know? exactly. I, I sort of fade in and out of like, you know, who cares? Did Christ, how did this happen? You know? Yeah. Uh, but so so that's this week's episode. Um, I'm, I'm sure there'll be a, a lot of thoughts and memories, so would love to hear them at the rugby league digest at gmail.com. As always, hit us up on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, this week, uh, there is no book recommendation because this chapter, more than any other, was really reliant on the contemporary media of the time. So all the news outlets, the Big League, Rugby League Week, all the rest of it. Of course, for so much of this, we were still relying on Mike Coleman's Super League book. So you know that goes without saying. So in lieu of a book plug, I'm going to promote uh, an article published in the Daily Telegraph late last year by Nick Campton on the North Sydney Bears of the 1990s. Uh, I can honestly say this was the best thing I read last year. It was perfection. Like, I, I hope it gets a Walkley. Like, it was such a brilliant piece of investigative journalism filled with heart and 
it was actually a really hard read knowing the way the story eventually yeah wrote. yeah I don't know what this word means, but it has builds pathos. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you've used it correctly. Um, f- full of full of pathos. So I, I don't know Nick at all, a- apart from the odd Twitter interaction. So it, it's an odd thing to say about someone, but I was so proud of him. Yeah, yeah. When I read this, like it, it's an amazing piece of journalism. And the reaction from our listeners on socials was overwhelmingly yeah. ecstatic. Yeah. So uh, anyone asking for a history corner. On the 1990s bears, uh, go and read this piece instead because yeah, I don't done. think we could uh, add anything to this. So um, congratulations to Nick Campton on that. Here, here. Okay, so on that note, we will speak to you next week. Bye-bye. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 